Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. Again and again, in our history, a trial has sent a message far bigger than the verdict itself. A legal case ended up framing a crucial issue of that moment. Colonial oppression, science versus dogma, government abuse of political protest. Now the trial of Donald J. Trump has become such a moment. The prosecutors have told an incredible story of high crimes and misdemeanors by the president of the United States. They have used photos, videos, copies of tweets and police interviews with the insurrectionists to show how Trump's plot against America began before the election and continued relentlessly right through the sacking of the Capitol. I want to read you something from an editorial from the opinion pages of today's Wall Street Journal, a place whose views I barely ever share or cite. The House impeachment managers this week are laying out a visceral case that the Capitol riot of January 6th was a disgrace for which President Trump bears responsibility. That is the quote. This is not the traditional debate about when free speech becomes reckless or dangerous. Donald Trump did not just yell fire in a crowded theater, although he surely did do that. No, this is something much bigger and something that goes to the heart of our crisis of truth in our country right now. Donald Trump is being tried for telling the classic big lie and then using the powers of his office, our office, the presidency, to try to make that lie come true. The House managers have proven beyond any reasonable doubt that Trump's big lie was the motivation for the attack on the Capitol. These defendants themselves have told you exactly why they were here. You'll see this in the trial. That in the halls of the Capitol, on social media, in news interviews, and in charging documents, they confirm they were following the president's orders. You can see some of the statements on that screen. One who said, Trump wants all able-bodied patriots. Another, that President Trump is calling us to fight. This isn't a joke. Another one, I thought I was following my president. I thought I was following what we were called to do. Our president wants us here. We wait and take orders from the president. He made them believe over many weeks that the election was stolen and they were following his command to take back their country. House impeachment managers are asking the senators to vote guilty because elected officials have a responsibility for the impact of their words. They're asking senators to vote guilty because elected officials should not be able to simply create alternative realities out of alternative facts and then walk away from those consequences because of a new administration or a pandemic or an economic crisis, they should not be able to walk away from the consequences. Free speech cannot be a fire and forget missile that destroys our democracy. Now, many of our friends in corporate media are taking this trial literally, but perhaps not as seriously as they should. They are obsessed with the question of whether there will be 67 votes to convict Trump. And that is an important question, of course. And the answer is, well, we don't know and probably not. Six Republicans have voted against the president on the question of whether this trial should even be held. 
how many more might join them now and that they've seen the footage and the evidence that was not public? Maybe it would take a few more, but it really does take 11 more. That's a big number. But what I want to say to everyone covering this trial and to all of you watching is that the verdict is not the most important question. And I can prove that just by taking a short walk with you through our history. In 1770, John Adams defended the soldiers who committed the Boston Massacre. He laid out the case that it was not the soldiers who were responsible, but their masters in London, the king and the parliament, who created the confrontation by oppressing the colonies. Facts, Adams proclaimed, are stubborn things. Most of the soldiers were acquitted and two were convicted on lesser charges. But those facts Adams laid out were, were spread widely from the trial and, and fired the American Revolution. Or remember Clarence Darrow's defense of John Scopes, who was charged with breaking the law in Tennessee by teaching evolution to his high school st students. And in 1925, Scopes was found guilty. But the argument streamed across the country by that new medium of radio made a compelling case to follow the science. Sounds relevant, doesn't it? And of course, this look back would not be complete without mention of the trial of the Chicago 7, which backfired on Nixon's Justice Department. William Kunstler used the defense to strip bare the unconstitutional behavior of federal authorities. Facts are stubborn th things. Science versus dogma. Government abuse of power. The message of these three trials are important to us even now. Those in corporate media would do well to remember this history as, they, as that's the, the meaning of this trial. Sure, it would be fitting and proper to convict Trump. I get it. But there's something much, much, much bigger at stake, even if the conviction doesn't happen, which probably won't. The, the great Czech writer and statesman Václav Havel called it living in truth. Totalitarians thrive on the big lie. To stop them, you got to live in truth. That is the question this trial forces us to decide right now. Will we be a country that lives in truth? Or will we be the kind of country that does not? These are the questions that we have to ask. And we will find out. Today, we have a great show. Uh, we have Arun Chowdhury and Chris Rabon, as it's Thursday. And before that, we have Eric Blanc on to discuss the teachers' fight in Chicago, the latest on that, and the latest on the Alabama workers who are organizing right now uh, in response to Amazon. We'll be right back right after the break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. We are so excited to have Eric Blanc back live. Uh, here we are. Eric is, of course, the uh, he's a writer that often appears in Jacobin, The Nation, The Guardian. And he is the author of Red State Revolt, The Teacher's Strike Wave, and Working Class Politics. He's also a former high school teacher uh, and is studying sociology right now. So, Eric, so much to discuss in organizing right now. What time? <laughs> like your eyes just went... <laughs> Um, let's start with Amazon. I feel like this is the one people have been watching closely this week. Uh, there has been a lot of news in the last couple of days. The Intercept just broke an article. Um, I don't know if you caught this, but it broke a few hours ago about how former, uh, 
Former FBI officials tapped for Amazon's growing security apparatus. This all happens in light of uh, organizers in Alabama who are trying to unionize and who are voting to unionize as Jeff Bezos steps down uh, and moves to the board as investors in the UK and the EU uh, and here as well and in New York City uh, claim that they will uh, divest if they if Amazon keeps pushing back on unionizing, how critical is this? I mean, you're, you're a student of, of like understanding labor and uh, the history of labor. Like how unique is the situation? Yeah, this is big. This is a, it's a really big. And, and, and I think that the reality is Amazon is the nut to crack if you're organized labor. So the stakes are really high for both the capitalist class as a whole and really for all working people because Amazon is not just you know one of the most profitable companies in, in the world, but it sort of sets the standard for what can be done to working people generally, right? Particularly like the dehumanization aspect. It's not just the low wages. It's not just the union busting. It's not just the um, sort of lack of health and safety. I think one of the particularities of what makes Amazon sort of like so despicable is that it's pushed us back to a place where you know, our fellow you know, brothers and sisters in this country are basically treated like robots. You know, it's like the old assembly line. So if we, when you read about and you hear the testimonies of Amazon workers who are working in the warehouse, for instance, Bessemer in Alabama, where they're trying to unionize, you know, they have this thing called TOT, which is basically keeps in track of how much time off the clock you're doing. And that includes going to the bathroom. It includes just stretching. And you can get fired if you have any transgression beyond this extremely limited amount of time to where you're not just doing the task. And so you, know, you see this regression, basically, just to treating human beings like robots and slaves. And that's ultimately, I think, what this is about. It's not just the wages and everything else. It's about just basic human dignity. They have like one of those um, wrist monitors. I mean, knowing how long you're stretching, what is that, like a heart monitor? The, the walking devices, the Amazon ones, I should say. Yeah, so it's like Taylorism. They're, they're tracking every single piece of your movement. They're tracking every piece of time you have. Oh and the only way you're going to change that is through unionization. And that's what, you know, that's what Amazon's terrified of. And it's why the stakes of this are so high. How do you think it got to this point? I mean, Amazon has been around for over two decades, three decades at this point. Um, did it always, I mean, it was, you know, back in the day when it started, it was this company that sold books and, uh, and then moved, moved outward. But like, were the conditions always this rough? Was this always in Jeff Bezos's like ethos? Did he have this, this, or did it eventually turn into this kind of company as it became a monopoly? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I think that the reality is that the competition of like the capital system in general does push companies uh, in this direction. So, so it's not just the case that like Bezos is this evil genius or evil, you know, tyrant, however you want to look at it. Um, in some ways that's true, but it, in some ways the, the sad reality is this is the structural dynamics of the system we live under, which that pushes the most profitable companies to try to squeeze the most amount of labor they can get out of their employees. And that's in part how they become billionaires, right? That's when Bernie said billionaires shouldn't exist. That was sort of the heart of that argument is that in order to get a Jeff Bezos, in order to get an Amazon that just had its record-breaking profits in this last quarter, I'm not sure if your listeners saw, had over 120 billion just in the fourth quarter of 2020, right? The way you get that is not 
just through being smart, you know, I think we can grant that, you know, some of the tech guys are good at coming ideas, but that's not how you make the profits. The profits come by squeezing labor and by exploiting labor. And that's how Amazon got so big. I don't think they would have gotten to this position without resorting to the types of um, really inhumane labor conditions that they've not just pioneered, but really sort of spread across labor in the country. So one thing I find interesting about Amazon right now um, is unlike some of the other companies that if, uh, you know, if, if there are stronger labor laws in a state, they can just move to a right to work state or they could just go overseas and find cheaper labor. They're sort of forced to operate in the conditions of of this country because of, you know, they want to send you your package uh, in an hour in New York. They want to, like, drop it through a drone. So they have to have these warehouses super close. Um, and, you know, the dynamics of New York uh, with labor are, are, are much stronger, right? We, we RWDSU is, is a large union that's that they're, they're working with, uh, Amazon workers to, they did it with, with fighting off the Amazon headquarters in New York, um, two years ago, although there are other Amazon facilities, but there are states in the South that don't have these labor laws. And even if they do have the labor laws, they still, you still have Chris Smalls who's, who, uh, had been organizing in New York. So I'm just curious, like, have you noticed different types of organizing, um, in different states based on the labor laws and, and whether or not unions even exist? Yeah, so the big story here is that the unionization drive is taking place in Alabama because the big weakness, really, of the American working class going back centuries now has been the South, which has its roots in you know Jim Crow and slavery, but that has never been overcome. And so still to this day, you know, the vast majority of unions are in so-called blue states. And that allows both our wages, if you live in a blue state, and to get lowered and unions to get weakened because there's this constant threat of moving to the South. It's not even just Mexico. Oftentimes you have factories moving from Mexico to the American South now because labor conditions uh, are actually even more profitable for companies in the American South. And so until you can organize the South, yeah, there's a whole dynamic of people, of companies moving back. And so until you can organize the South, the labor movement's essentially going to remain anemic at best. So the stakes of the Amazon dynamic are really important because it's not just Amazon, but it also sets the precedent for potentially starting uh, to significantly organize the South. What you mentioned is really important that because Amazon, it has what we call like just-in-time production, which means that their whole supply chain really does depend on moving things very quickly it creates these chokeholds where these warehouses are so strategically important. So Bessemer, where the unionization drive is taking place, has 50, uh, 5,800 workers. So this is massive. This is like, if you imagine the factories of like, you know, Charles Dickens or something, that's what the, we're talking about here is a massive conglomeration of workers in a strategic chokehold. Because if those workers shut down work, you're talking about millions of profits lost very quickly. And so because of that, Amazon has to resort to an extremely, extremely harsh anti-union campaign um, as far as what they're doing right now. They're texting workers. They're having in-person meetings. They're having, as far as I know, the most amount of TV ads against uh, in local TV against a union drive ever. And the part of the reason is that they can't really threaten uh, the same types of you know, moving across seas. They can threaten to move... Um, places you know they are saying that they can threaten say we're gonna you know we're gonna leave Bessemer Alabama if you unionize if you unionize they can make that threat so which is why you can't really just unionize one shop by shop it does have to be part of a bigger drive 
Um, and ultimately, that's why we need a national movement to take on Amazon. So they can't just sort of pick us up one uh, shop at a time. How, how effective is it looking on the ground right now? I mean, in, in terms of the union vote? Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. I'll say it's, the first thing to say is it's amazing they've gotten this far, right? It, it, it's not easy to even get to this point where you can convince the NLRB, which is the federal government sort of arm for uh, jurisdiction over labor disputes, to, or unionization drives, to even uh, prove to them that you have enough votes to warrant uh, a vote for unionizing. You have to provide a certain percent. And that has already been reached. I believe it's 30% of workers. Um, and so the, the reality is we won't know until the vote takes place because the, the ballots just went out. And it's just worth saying that Amazon resorted to the same tactics that Trump did, which is to try to discount uh, mail, <laughs> mail voting to say that this is not going to be secure, to force people to vote in person at the, at the company, uh, which obviously is just another way of intimidating workers from voting, against, uh, voting for a union. Uh, that actually got pushed back. So uh, that got, got defeated, thankfully, which means that the ballots just went out um, just this week. And they haven't, the workers have until March 29th to vote. And so if you get 50 plus one, you can have a union. The difficulty is you have two months now in which Amazon is doing everything in its powers to scare workers from unionizing. It's just, you know, it's just shock and awe, every single thing. They're having in-person uh, meetings with workers trying to scare them off. It's just, you know, they're throwing the, they're throwing the sink at them. So because of that, it's very hard to know that even if you had a majority of workers before this, uh, there's no guarantee that by the end of this, you're going to be able to uh, have everyone support. And even if you do, even if you get a majority to vote for union, because of the craziness of American labor law, that doesn't guarantee you actually will get your first contract. The difficulty in American labor uh, law is that even if you vote to unionize, I think a majority of new unions still don't actually even reach uh, a contract because the, the um, bosses will just ignore you and try to wait you out. So this, I think we should be very sober-minded about the stakes um, that are at play and also the hurdles that the workers have to organize. Yeah. I think if they can win, it's just going to be uh, you know, shot in the arm of all of labor. But precisely because of that, Amazon is really doing everything they can to try to stop them. Um, I have so many questions. So is there the, the counter campaign, is it, is it just unions or are there other folks coming in and, and assisting the workers and, and making sure that their message is, I mean, it's so hard to compete with Amazon when it, I mean, in any way they're sending texts out there, you know, there's intimidation internally, there's ah, all this stuff. It's expensive. It's, it's, uh, yeah. uh, so is there any outside effort or outside help for the workers? You know, it, it, it's tricky. I would say that the number one thing that this drive has going for it is that Bessemer is a union town. And so, so, so it, it's, it's, it used to be a steel town. And so the, a lot of the workers um, come from union families. And so there is kind of like a precedent and you can look to places like, you know, West Virginia has a similar thing where even if you hadn't been on strike before, if your parents had been in a union, you sort of know what the bosses do. You have some sort of like linear lineage as far as understanding who your enemies are and why organizations, organization is important. It's one of the reasons why the union is focusing on this uh, another thing in the union's favor, and this is all to say, these are the main factors going for them in the absence, I think, actually of a broader, unfortunately, a broader labor movement push and support, which I would like to, I wish we'd seen, but I, I haven't seen that yet. But the other factor they have going for it is that this is overwhelmingly black workforce. 
um, which is important for various reasons, not least of which is the fact that um, if you listen to the testimonials of workers, there has been a, a sort of an inspiration factor from a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests not that long ago, just in this summer and since, sort of inspiring uh, workers to say, well, look, if they fought back and won, we can do the same. And kind of just getting a general sense that a protest works and that B, we deserve more. And so there's this racial justice component uh, to the fight there that I think is resonating and it could provide enough for the workers to get over the finish line, even in the absence of a broader kind of broad uh, union solidarity effort in support of the workers. There's um, the seeds are planted. So nationally, uh, what's next? I mean, we, we don't have this broad labor call. I mean, it, it, unfortunately, it's uh, we know the state of labor in this country. So how do we take this and and or how do workers um, take the success or loss or whatever and expand it nationally? Right. Well, the first thing is it's not too late. You know, the um, we have a crucial month and a half, a little bit more. Um, to try to do everything you can to support the workers and also just take advantage. If you're, if you're a listener right now, this is a great time to share what's going on there with your coworkers and to kind of spread the seeds just of the kind of inspiration of what they're doing to dare to go up against Amazon is, you know, this is kind of a heroic act. And so I think that we should both give our solidarity to the workers in every way possible, you know, simple stuff like sharing on social media or um, just looking online for finding different ways that you can show solidarity. But just as important, I think, is using their example, say, look, if they're doing it there, we can do it here. Because you're not going to win just in Alabama. You're not going to win in just one shot. It's ultimately going to require organizing both Amazon nationally and just as being part of a broader labor surge, right? Um, Otherwise, they can pick us off one at a time. So I think that the ultimate power of what's going on um, with the unionization drive is going to be in its kind of like domino effect possibilities. And so that means that we need to start talking about it as widely as possible, especially if there's threats and they're already, uh, we should expect them for reprisals against the workers who do vote to unionize, right? Because we need to be prepared not only to support them now, but if they do vote to unionize and there's firings or there's threats to move the plant, all of that, those things are possibilities. And so the more awareness we can spread across the country right now, both that's going to help them. And I think it's going to ultimately help our organizing efforts as well. Uh, has Biden given any sort of signals? Uh, <laughs> your face. <laughs> okay, that's, thanks. That's <laughs> a good, that's a good, it's a good question. I don't, I don't know. I, that's actually a really interesting question. I haven't seen him say anything yeah. about it. It's possible. It's possible he's done something pro forma. I don't think we should discount the possibility that now under pressure, you know, I think yeah. under pressure, the Democrats can be forced to do things. And we've seen that already. Right. So I don't think that we should discount the possibility. And, you know, Biden should if he hasn't already yet. But it certainly hasn't made a big plank of uh, you know what he's talking about these days. Um, all right, let's pivot to teachers, where uh, Chicago teachers once again are, uh, are 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 organizing and pushing back against the the, the mayor. What's like we've covered a little bit of on their show before um, yeah. with Kenzo Shibata out of Chicago. So uh, has there been any sort of update in terms of the organizing effort in Chicago? Yeah, well, there's the big development is the union uh, sent to its members yesterday the proposal, you know, sort of a compromise proposal to return to school. And it was overwhelmingly two to one voted on. So actually starting today, some um, educators, mostly pre-K, are returning. 
Um, and that is a big development. Basically, the reality is the union did not get everything it wanted as far as providing safe schools for both students and educators. Nobody's saying this is a great deal, but because of their threat to strike and their threat and their organizing over these last weeks, they were able to get significant concessions in terms of more vaccinations, in terms of health and safety committees at the schools to ensure safety, and in terms of like triggering criteria for when you would close schools again. So it's, you know, their sense, and I think this is probably right, is this is the most they could get at this moment from an extremely hostile um, administration locally. And so it's, it, it, the, you know, the organizing continues. Uh, Eric, I mean, I, I just don't understand how in this climate, I just don't get it. I, I'm, I know you guys have been through this many times before and especially under Rahm Emanuel where there was, it's just, I, I don't get it. I just don't understand how a Democrat in Chicago in this moment can be so adverse to, to, to unions and teachers when charter schools, I mean, it just, I thought that the, the word was out uh, among Democrats that it was a flop after Betsy DeVos. How can you get away with this? It's just, I don't, I'm maybe I'm completely blind and don't understand the dynamics at play, but like how in the court of public opinion, how could you so aggressively be in opposition to teachers? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think that a, what you sort of hinted at is, is sad reality still, which is that up until very recently, actually, this was the norm amongst the Democratic Party establishment. So in some ways, it's not that surprising that there's a lot of corporate Democrats who still will see sort of any opportunity to try to undermine unions. And, and this is a particular dynamic with Lori Lightfoot, who's just had it out for CTU, the Chicago Teachers Union, ever since she got in office. They already had a strike against her very early on in her uh, tenure, you know, as mayor. So there's no love lost between the union and Lori Lightfoot. And I think what you're seeing now with politicians like her, who are ultimately really um, subordinate to the influence of big business, they're seeing an opportunity right now to try to roll back the momentum and legitimacy of the teachers union by pointing to a real you know, a real problem, which we all acknowledge, which is that we do want schools to be back open. It's extremely hard for working class parents in particular to have students at home. You know, people are at their wit's end. And so if you are an enemy of unions, you're going to see this moment and try to pin that on the teachers union. And that's what you're seeing with Lori Lightfoot. And you're seeing it across the country. Um, The difficulty is that if you don't provide vaccines and if you don't provide you know, checks, for instance, you know, monthly stimulus checks to, so people can stay at home, then there's just no good alternative. There's, you're putting the unions and teachers in an impossible situation. And so that does create some leverage, I think, for, um, you know, opponents of unions to try to, you know, make it seem like unions are being the opponents of, you know, the needs of working families. I don't think it's working, um, yeah. luckily, because teachers have shown that they're fighting for students. But that's, I think, basically the dynamic why they're doing what they're doing. And and what's the public opinion like right now in Chicago? You know, the CTU has, uh, over all of these years, built up very deep roots with the community. And so fortunately, that is still what you see. The the overall dynamic still support for the union. But you do see it, you know, you you see out there um, the reality, which is a lot of parents really would rather have their students back uh, in the, you know, in-person classes. It's extremely hard. And I think that the longer this goes on, 
the more people are just, you know, desperately looking for some sort of resolution. That being said, you know, most, most parents, even with this um, new deal, are probably still going to keep their kids at home, both in solidarity, but also just for their own safety, right? This is their safety that is getting put into danger as well, not just of teachers, but students and spreading it to family members. When they opened in, uh, they briefly opened earlier this year to try to have a, the initial Chicago school reopening, the majority of parents kept their kids at home. And, and we're not at, by any means out of the pandemic at all right now. So it's, it, with the line of the Chicago Teachers Union makes sense is they said, look, why not give ourselves a few more weeks to get the vaccines out to fix health safety matters? Why would you push, you know, was the urgency to push it back uh, to push this through right now when you could literally be leading to the deaths of countless educators and parents and students. When she have for re-election? <laughs> yes. yeah. Pretty soon, hopefully. Hopefully a teacher can run against her. Uh, <laughs> planting the seeds. Eric Blanc, you are so wonderful. Just a great, great summary of, of everything that's happening in, in these two, I mean, not everything that's happening in labor, but these two big stories that have been going on for a while. Um, hope to have you back on soon to give us more updates. Yeah, thanks for all your work. Thank you for all your work, Eric. Okay. We'll be right back with our fantastic panel that's here every Thursday, Representative Rab from Philadelphia and Arun Chowdhury uh, here to, from Berlin or wherever he is in the world because he's always somewhere, so we'll find out where he is. Stay tuned and find out where Arun is. That's the important thing. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Nomiki Show. Uh, have you guys heard about our book club? Very exciting. We did an enlightening interview with Josh Fox, who's the author of our first book for February. It's called The Truth Has Changed. Uh, it is a, a, basically it's a book that he wrote that came out of his one-man show that he did all over the country uh, which was came out of his, you know, I guess the last 20 years of his work. Um, you know, Josh started off in the theater and he uh, covered the 9-11 and the Iraq war and saw how truth sort of shifted through all this, um, how we how we related to truth in politics, how we diagnose truth. And he of course, part of the 2016 uh, campaign, and he fought the oil industry, and he saw how how the oil industry uh, used information, misinformation against him and others who tried to uh, you know push back against you know whether it was was uh, fracking or other you know pipelines. Um, so the the whole book is just about how truth has shifted, and it's and and there are political mechanisms out there that have rap rapidly shifted the way that we. Uh, process or understand truth, you know, of course, Cambridge Analytica being the one that many of us know now. Um, great time for this book because, you know, post, post coup, post Trump, I think it's a, a good moment for us to process how we got to this moment. And I was, I just, yeah, I've seen the show many times. I've read the book. It's going to be coming out in film as well uh, in the coming months. And even after all of that, I read it again and had this conversation with Josh and it was just the perfect moment to be discussing these issues. So go check out our book club. It is at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. There are three levels. You can read one book a month with us, two books or four books a month. And we just announced our partnership with Verso Books, who will be uh, working with us 
with our book club, we will be releasing books to you, sending them to you as they are released through Verso and hopefully having conversations with authors if they're available or alive. <laughs> That's what people always ask. All right. Drum roll, please. We have Run Chowdhury here and, of course, Rep Rab uh, live from Philadelphia. Run Chowdhury is a political filmmaker. He was the first official White House videographer for... President Obama, and he worked as creative director for Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign. Uh, where is a run right now? Where are you in Kosovo still? I feel like that's Kosovo. your Kosovo set. Yes. <laughs> I now yeah, know so, what your house yeah, looks yeah. like. My kitchen at Kosovo. <laughs> <laughs> and Rep Rab has like a green screen thing happening behind him. <laughs> Rep Rab of- Living the life. <laughs> of course, Rep Rab represents the 200th district of the Pennsylvania House, and that is Northwest Pennsylvania, but you're in Harrisburg right now, right? No, I'm actually I'm actually in Philly. We have a four week, um, <laughs> we, have, we have a four week, uh, I don't know if you call it recess, but we're not in Harrisburg, and yet another Republican colleague of mine has come down with COVID. Shocker. Is he okay? He, he, he just announced today that he has, symptoms uh, you haven't you know, been in and have you been in close present yeah it's very i'm not in close contact with any republican um, i do most of my voting electronically when <laughs> i am there i'm in my office i'm hundreds if not thousands of feet from the closest republican <laughs> i right hope there. i am too by the way <laughs> as far yeah, as i know i am my job <laughs> That's great. And so a run is thousands of miles from the closest. <laughs> ah, he wins. He wins. The, where yeah. in the world is yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a run <I'm> chattery? <laughs> We're going to have to do a segment like that now. All right, guys. Man. Okay. Busy day. Um, before we get to the big news of, of the impeachment, I, I want to start off with this clip uh, I saw it right before coming on. If, there was a guest on Fox News. There's so much Fox News stuff happening right now. I can't. It's like candy but it's also horrifying because it's indicative of of how we got to this point um which is why i think it's important that we watch these things so one of the guests on fox news uh, is an evangelical christian radio host and naturally a financial advisor his name is dave ramsey and uh i mentioned financial advisor because Mm -hmm. he talks about these stimulus checks and whether or not people really need them let's play that clip well, to start with, we need to understand we got $1.7 trillion in student loan debt. $192 billion out of that, not so much. Let's do some ratios, folks. If we're going to do math, we probably ought to play math. Now, on top of that, when you dig into it, the whole idea that, that student loans being forgiven is going to stimulate the economy, that assumes that people were getting ready to pay them off this year and instead would use that same $40,000 that they were getting ready to pay off their student loan and stimulate the economy with it. Again, that's economic hogwash. It's smoke <laughs> and mirrors. It's simply not going to happen. Dave, I just think there's a, there's a moral hazard doing this. You're oh, young. absolutely. You, you signed a financial contract. You have an obligation to pay that money back. 
Absolutely. Well, listen, there's some situations where folks are hurting and this thing has become, it's gotten completely out of hand. Yeah. I mean, there are people's lives who have been destroyed by this program. Somebody needs some relief somewhere. I'm fine with that. But this has nothing to do with really helping people. This is a political gimme by progressives simply trying to buy votes. And we know that because when you go from 10,000 in forgiveness to 50,000 in forgiveness, the people who benefit are not lower income people. The vast majority of people that have an average income or less have less than $10,000 in student loan debt. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of people who would be blessed by moving it from 10 to 50 are high income earners. So again, this is all political yeah. rhetoric. You know, it's Dave, not reality. Dave, you come from an interesting perspective. You talk to Americans across the country every day on your radio program. Yeah. What, what, what do you believe is the right number or the right answer for a for the next it stimulus check? It's getting check? better, guys. Well, this is, I don't believe in a stimulus check because it's <laughs> $600 or $1,400 so right your life, you were pretty <laughs> yeah. much screwed already. You got other issues going on. Uh, you, have a, you have a career problem, you have a debt part. problem, you have a relationship problem, you have a mental health problem, something else is going on if $600 changes your life. And that's not talking down to folks. I've been bankrupt. I've been broken. I work with people every day who are hurting. I love people. I want people to be lifted up. But this is, again, it is, it is just political rhetoric and it's just throwing dollars out there. It's peeing on a forest fire. Everyone's just like, there's so much to this. Listen, guys, all you got to do, if you're struggling, if you got some student loans, if you got like 300,000 of student loans, just start a church and a radio show and become a financial advisor and, ye and be white. <laughs> and you will be fine, too. <laughs> why, why did you do that to us? I know that was a lot. That was a lot all at once. I, 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 don't, <laughs> I don't know if I can forgive you for that. I because this is what's happening this i mean it's important like donald trumpism is not going away and this is i fox news has been losing there's more mm. oh wait you've got more coming guys no they've been losing their minds but but this is also what joe biden watches like you have to keep in mind like we gotta watch his progressives because that's what they're watching they're reading the Wall Street Journal. They're reading the Financial Times. They're watching Fox News because that's kind of like where they're pressured. I mean, but this is classic, just sort of the Republican worldview as incoherent as it is. This doesn't feel like Trumpism to me. This is yeah, the regular right. stuff. Yeah. And, no, I think it just shows you, you know, at the heart of it, like, yes, there's this big ideological divide between like the Trump Republicans and these, you know, Lincoln Project Republicans or whatever. But what you're hearing here is like the sticky center that unites all of the beasts, right? right. Like just this idea, this idea. And, and the problem is at the conclusion, you end up saying like this very reasonable thing in this derisive way, which like if you had enough pee, you could put out the fire that way. Like it's, you know, it, you know it acknowledging like, yes, this, this could work, you know? Ron, that, that's a tweet. You got to, if, if you had enough pee, wow. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm all right, Rep. Rep, you are fighting these guys in in the Capitol. I mean, like that's the the reality is is like these are the people that we are fighting. Um, these are the messages that are coming at us, not just on the Republican side, but on the Democratic side with with less of this insanity. Not Chuck Schumer. I mean, what was interesting about that was he said something about like this is just progressives trying to buy votes. Most of the progressives that I know that are pushing this forward are in very safe districts where they don't got to buy anybody's votes. They're getting 78% of the vote. 
yeah. like yourself. Yeah, yeah. This, this is we're talking about a wide swath of America right here. We're talking about the symptoms of a business model, the Walmartification of academia and uh, higher education. And this is not, I mean, this is a, a big step in the right direction, but it does not solve the systemic issues that allow for the Walmartification of so many sectors. So, you know, this is patently absurd. And I'm sure the polling will reveal that a large majority of folks are like, yeah, I'll do that. I'll take that, irrespective of, of political ideology. But I just want to go back to my colleague who I, you know, uh, they say has, has COVID. He's this really small government guy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, nice guy, but his politics are, um, you know, all about the smallest gov uh, government possible and how government is the root of all evil, yet he has a full-time job in a full-time state legislature. And when he goes home, he has really good health care. Right. We have really good benefits as full-time state lawmakers in Pennsylvania. He doesn't have to see a bill. He doesn't have to see any of that. And, you know, that's okay for him and his family. But when we talk about just helping folks at their, at their lowest, mm -hmm. somehow it applies, you know, it, it's okay for you. But if it's anybody else, then there's that, that, that moral, uh, moralistic view, like, oh, well, we're just giving stuff away. And that's the essential hypocrisy of the Republican Party. Right. Because well, I mean, if you don't believe in government, why, why are you even in it? Well, because they want tax breaks. That's why I mean, <laughs> you, you could lobby from the outside or you could lobby yeah. from the inside or you can meet your friends in between. I mean, that's what I kept seeing with that was like this guy has no problem, no problem lobbying for his tax breaks that he didn't earn. And and I, I, it was I don't know. I just I just thought they were saying stuff out loud that like wouldn't be said. 20, 30 years ago, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> well, the part that wouldn't have been said, uh, which is maybe interesting just in terms of the trajectory of the government, and we've talked about, I mean, and, and of rhetoric, and we've talked about it here before, is this kind of over-concern for, well, what if rich people take this? And like, you know, maybe this is something good intended for real folks, but we're just going to let the privileged take advantage of it. I don't think that's something you would have heard 50 years ago because they wouldn't have cared. It would have been just like, nah, people who want stuff are bad. Mm -hmm. Now I think they're, they're, they are finding sort of things that seem to work with their more angry uh, and maybe more populist membership uh, that is a little flavored slightly differently. Like this was, that was definitely normally would have been up to a four and here was up to a seven. You know what else kind of, uh, it felt like there was a little bit of a dog whistle of, because you know the Fox viewers, many of them might have student loans, probably have student loans, probably have mm -hmm. debt, probably would like those $1,400 stimulus checks or $600 or $2,000, whatever it is. My guess is the majority of Fox News viewers do qualify and want them. But the way that he is saying is, is more like, no, but it's those other people. It's the illegals. Mm -hmm. It's the people of color. It was a dog whistle. So again, it's, it's this like pitting, you know, them versus the others that are stealing their jobs, whatever they, they, it, it's, it's another version of that, that I feel like we're easing into. Yeah. Um, Tucker Carlson, it, it gets worse guys. And I, I'm sorry to put you through this torture, but He's Tucker. the one who's mixing this stuff up the best. So I'm actually exactly. excited to see whatever you're going to show me. I mean, listen, Rep Rab, you're from a purple state. 
you got the Trump people there. And Arun, you are a media guru. So I want to hear your your psychological, like you would take down his his strategy here. So Tucker Carlson, uh, who I think is the most fear, I have the most fear of him, either in terms of like a political future, if we were ever going to have a Trump again, I don't see anybody who has a career that Trump had 20 years ago when he was on The Apprentice, the most successful show on on uh, on the on on anywhere on, on TV. Um, I don't see anybody else who has that kind of following other than Tucker Carlson. Doesn't mean that he's going to run, but if you're going to recreate Trump or keep building on Trump, I only see him as the person being able to do so. So let's let's play uh, Tucker Carlson's reaction to what's going on right now with the impeachment, but specifically what happened on January 6th with the uh, the coup. So what does all of this mean exactly? We're not sure what it means, and we're not going to speculate. We do know for certain that the known facts of what happened on January 6th deviate in very important ways from the story they are now telling us, including the story they told us today in the impeachment hearings. And in many places, the known facts bear no resemblance to the story they're telling. They're just flat out lying. There's no question about that. The question is, why would they lie about this? For an answer, think back to last spring. Beginning of Memorial Day, BLM and their sponsors in corporate America completely changed this country. They changed this country more in five months than it had changed in the previous 50 years. How'd they do that? They used the sad death of a man called George Floyd to upend our society. Months later, we learned that the story they told us about George Floyd's death was an utter lie. There was no physical evidence that George Floyd was murdered by a cop. The autopsy showed that George Floyd almost certainly died of a drug overdose, fentanyl. But by that point, facts didn't matter. It was too late. Cities had been destroyed along with the fabric of this country itself. Scores of people had been killed. Democratic partisans used a carefully concocted myth, a lie, to bum rush America into overturning the old order and handing them much more power. It worked flawlessly. So why wouldn't they do it again? Yeah. So first off, low-hanging fruit. Corporate America, he loves to criticize how many corporations sponsor his show. Let's just start with the easy, the easiest stuff here. Um, but Fox News is, in my opinion, they are going into QAnon territory. They're, he is, and he is sort of, whatever the limit is, he's in charge of pushing it and creating the new limit. Mm. Um, and he's good at it. Very good at it, but uh, blatantly racist. Uh, let, let's let's start with you, Rep. Rap. Let's just hear your take on on how bad it's gotten. Um, this this is not a new um, tactic. Is to attack the character of a dead black person at the hands of white folk. They did that with Michael Brown. They did that with Eric Garner. They try to talk about the criminality or conspiracies associated. They try to say this is a flawed human being as though somehow flawed human beings deserve to be killed at the hands of cops. Um, this, this is just pushing the envelope, like you said, to a, a far to the right. Um, it is despicable, but you know that is the norm for Tucker Carlson. So I'm, I'm not surprised. I'm, I'm deeply angered by what I just saw not surprised. And um, I, Trump has allowed for that type of uh, racism to flourish out in the open 
and for uh, for a certain subset of white folk to justify to justify that level of um, vitriol against black folk and and BIPOC folk. And um, that's like I said, it you know, uh, I think last week or the week before, this is a call to duty for white people to have these conversations and say, shut it down. They shut down Lou Dobbs, yeah. but they shut down because they're afraid of their bottom line and being exposed to civil liability. It was not a moral move. It was a self-protective capitalistic move to say, we, are, we need to make sure that we replace him with someone who's not going to hurt our advertising dollars. But for the folks outside of corporate media, the folks who, um, who have family members who think like this, who watch these shows, it's going to be their responsibility. It's not going to be Amanda Gorman. It's not going to be Michelle Obama or Kamala Harris or anybody, uh, the latest black luminary. It's going to be white people. And I, I, I'm waiting to see how that materializes because in every moment, it, those communities who are responsible for creating that harm, those people who say, I am not a part of that, I benefit from it, but I don't agree with it, what are we going to do? And that is the inflection point I'm waiting for. And I'm not super optimistic, but I know if any meaningful change is going to happen, it's going to come from within. It's not going to be from black folks saying, you should do this. You should do that. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned it. It comes down to the bottom line. I mean, I, I was thinking as this clip was playing, how crazy is it that, I wouldn't expect something like that coming from Bill O'Reilly's mouth. And Bill O'Reilly, I thought, was the worst you could get. And what took Bill O'Reilly out, I mean, he, he uh, with all due respect, I mean, like, like he was absolutely dog whistling and he had, a, but there was like a weird line. I used to do a show a lot. So he, he kind of like every once in a while, he'd just surprise me with, there was a line. And, and I, I don't know if, if it was just that version of the Republican Party or not, I, I don't know. Um, maybe it was just the rules of Fox News. Maybe it was just pre-Trump. I have no idea. But what took him out was the bottom line. Well, it came down to advertisers being so disgusted by the countless allegations, advertisers, uh, you know, you know, worried about lawsuits, whatever it is. Um, you still have Laura Ingram, who whose own brother says that her father was was a Nazi, and she's had really strange comments when it comes to uh, her leanings. And in, in, in terms, you know, without putting anything out there and, and getting attacked for it, you can go Google it. Um, they have a lineup that is just effing out there right now in ways that I, I worry about, like. How this it doesn't need to continue in the Q spaces. It's right there on Fox News, and the Q spaces have actually made it so that Fox News is like, oh, we might lose our supporters, so we have to go further now. Run, you know, you've been watching this stuff happening abroad. I mean, it's been it, mm -hmm. this is not new. Comedians having shows pushing these ideas out, not new. Um, right wingers going on mainstream media pushing it more, not new, but it cultivates these fascistic movements and it's just finding more and more fertile ground i mean i think it was always there i think you can find 
you know, crazy conspiracies, paranoid style in American politics certainly was written a long time ago. Like all these things are out there, but it's just, you know, the, the, the polarization and the willingness. And I think some of it, it isn't the technology that we live in. It's not that QAnon is online. It's not that we're getting our information off Facebook. It's that we it's that these things going online has somehow infantilized us into thinking that we need to be told what's true and what's not true by an authority and that we really can't rely on ourselves. And I don't want this is going to sound like victim blaming. And so and I don't mean that because there's no equivalence here. But, you know, just like Ginger Rogers had to do everything Fred Astaire did backwards and in high heels and every person of color will tell you, you know, we have to do a much better job at work than everyone else. And, you know, definitely not get angry about it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the responsible journalists have to not engage in things that people know are not true because this is what happens. You know, when you have, you know, your Rachel Maddow's kind of really getting over their skis on like Russiagate and stuff like this. And because it was hot and like it sold some papers and et cetera, et cetera, people really pushing in on things. It does create a more fertile ground. People are like, well, Tucker Carlson's saying that they're lying about this. And I know that they were lying about that. And it all just becomes a big, huge mush because people aren't self-reliant. There isn't the inner gatekeeper as much anymore. And that's the real social erosion that's happened. You know, people talk about fake news this, fake news that. It's the erosion of our inner gatekeeper that scares me more than sort of the willingness of people to say extreme things because I, I don't think that that's new. And, and calling it out where it, whatever the source, if that's yeah. coming from Democrats, mm-hmm. right? If it's coming from... Listen, you can see stuff on MSNBC or CNN. It, you don't have to just go to Fox News or uh, Newsmax or whatever. You can find this everywhere. Anytime you soft pedal white supremacy, you're part of the problem. And if you can't, and I, I've been saying this for years, if you can't say the word, the term white supremacy or systemic racism or structural inequality or heteropatriarchy, whatever multisyllabic word that represents the, the reality that has allowed us to experience this multi-generational shit show that has hurt millions of people in urban, suburban, and rural areas, then you are a part of the problem, right? And reality is Corporate media is an extension of corporate America and Wall Street. So just the expectation that, that to, to believe that they're going to, to, to speak in good faith and in great depth about the very things that the corporations who advertise on their shows and the corporations that own the media outlets is, is patently absurd. But if we don't have the level of media literacy, I know Arun talks about this, we don't have the basic media literacy and to connect it with the civic literacy around this, then we're just chasing our tails. And at what point do we wake up and say, we need to learn about the context in which all of these decisions are being made and how language is yeah. used and how it's all connected, then we're not going to actually move ahead. And so I just saw that they, you know, um, and Jemima, uh, you know, uh, they removed the name and they put another name on there and so forth, but they're still selling the same crap, right? That, <laughs> that causes obesity that is full of all kinds of chemicals and it's going to be disproportionately bought by poor people, black folk and so forth. So even if you don't have the minstrel on the package, the package itself and the contents in that package aren't really helping us. And, you know, it's a metaphor for all of the kind of consumeristic, um, hyper-capitalistic things that we don't actually discuss in a meaningful way. How many times 
are people conflating democracy and capitalism or mm-hmm. free enterprise, you know, the, the myth of I free mean, enterprise. Mira Tandon is a perfect example. Being somebody who, I, I, that's all I could think about yesterday after hearings was, this is a woman whose institution was there to represent foreign interests and corporations. And now she is going to be in charge of the budget of the United States. That's not democracy. That's capitalism. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. It's just, it's this, this stuff has been, it's been weighing on my mind a lot because I, you know, the reason why I, I want to put these clips on in this moment is not just to understand how we got there. I mean, Fox News has always been aggressive, but there's, this is a pivotal moment where either Trumpism dies as we're in this impeachment and it's not going to die. We know that it's white supremacy, but this, this, this flavor, um, or does it continue? Does this like fascistic, like does the Josh Hawley, uh, Ted Cruz isms, I mean, if they're not held accountable or shamed, where does it go? If the Democrats aren't going to convict uh, or if they're not going to shame enough, then where does it go? And, and it really, I mean, we have to understand how we got there. We have to have a better media literacy, but we also, uh, there's some, like, it's just the... There's a shift happening in left media. There's a shift happening in right media. There's a shift happening online. There are algorithms that, you know, push out certain, you know, narratives more than others. And I think in spaces like ours, you know, we just want to do the best we can to help inform people about what's happening and why it's happening and where it could potentially go. We're like, what is worse than this? Is there something worse than this? Um, And I think about, you know, the Obama administration when they just ignored Fox News. Mm-hmm. Remember how they they just in the beginning, you know, yeah, run, yeah, yeah, yeah. They ignored Fox News and birtherism exploded. Um, they just ignored it, and I and I don't think we can get away with that right now. I, I... no, we do it at our own peril. Yeah, right? we do it at our own peril. Now I don't think that, show means up. that we need to be watching it. You know, as, as though we're going to hear something new, but we have to understand the patterns and the narratives that they're using, um, the sources that they use, um, and how it, you know, we, we got to figure out how they connect the dots because that will inform our strategy to deal with uh, this insurgency of, of essentially white supremacists right. uh, who, embrace, who are, you know, quietly or otherwise embrace, you know, authoritarianism. Um, that's important. Um, so we, for those of us who are... Um, who uh, are on the other side of the aisle, um, we have to demand that we speak and that we lead by example, right? And it's, it's one thing to, to bash, you know, right-wingers. That's easy. Sometimes it's fun. Uh, uh, but th- there is more important internal work that we have to do. Um, There's so many blind spots that Democrats have, um, that liberals have, um, and we have to address that because what happens is it makes it really easy to just distract ourselves and focus on the QAnon folks when the folks who are in the rooms are, are um, corporate extensions of the Republican and Democratic parties. And we need to hold their feet to the fire as well. We need to say how they are complicit and how we are complicit when we don't um, hold them accountable and say these policies um, benefit Wall Street. They do not help the people who you claim to uh, to support and represent, even though the folks on the other side 
have no interest in representing those groups. Like, it's not about how we compare ourselves to conservatives. It's how we compare ourselves to our best selves um, and our espoused values. And that is hard work. That means that I have to do that as an elected public servant and say, am I walking the talk? Um, We can do that in our personal lives. We can do it as parents, as neighbors, and so forth. Anytime we walk away from that responsibility, we are complicit. And, you know, like I said earlier, white folk have to have these conversations within their own families and communities. Uh, Men, hetero, cis men like me have to do the same thing. Public servants, whether we're progressive or corporate or whatever, we have to do the same thing. We can never rest. And that's the thing about democracy, right? You, You can't sleep on democracy. You can't rest on your laurels or it will fall into what we're experiencing now, which started off as a very, very fragile democracy. And now it is in tatters. So this is the work we have to do. So we have to start at home. And the one constituency that's, a, you know, that doesn't get sort of fair shrift, especially from, you know, the uh, more liberal elements uh, of the Democratic Party, the one constituency group is poor people. And I think this sort of conversation around, uh, you know, these folks and conspiracy theories and things tends to take on a very just pejorative against poor people language and they can hear you say those things, you know, and the idea that somehow there's like poor people breeding ignorance and that is a festering place for these ideas to come in isn't true. Like racism isn't cheap. People spend a lot of good money making sure that racism permeates deep and that white supremacy was built. It was not built cheap and it is not cheap to maintain. It just happens to be able to make a hell of a lot of money. So it's worthy investment for some folks. But until we start thinking about that way, we just, it's so easy. It's so cheap and it's so easy. And it's antithetical, I hope, to the bones of the people in the Democratic Party. Uh, just while we're sitting here, Project Veritas has been permanently suspended by Twitter for posting private mm-hmm. information. So, you know, some good news. Um, do you have like one more second? I have some good news I do want to share. I don't want it to be all about please, uh, the horrible state please. of the world that we're living in. It's 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 sort of good, I should say. Uh, the New York City taxi workers who I, you know, being a New Yorker, I adore how the taxi workers have been organizing. They've been shutting down bridges. They get out. I mean, the videos are just so wholesome and beautiful. And uh, Senator Schumer, Senator Schumer uh, is now standing with them. Let's let's play that clip real quick. Do we have it? Yep, we do. Senator Chuck Schumer has just released a statement in support of us. So I love this because, you know, it's been a long fight um, for taxi workers, but this is this has obviously big consequences. I mean, there have been several cities around the world that have banned Uber and Lyft and uh, in support of their taxi workers. But it's it seemed almost impossible in 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 this country. Um, And this is, I think, a great step in that direction, even though it's it's debt relief. But, you know, for, for folks who don't know, the medallions. Uh, have gone down uh, as they're basically worthless at this point. And there has been, um, there been uh, several suicides for the taxi work from taxi workers in New York. I'm sure it's happening in other cities as well. Uh, and yet I, I've really not seen the type of support from leadership in New York, a democratic town needed. Um, 
Senator Schumer, the leader, the speaker of that, or excuse me, the, the majority leader of the Senate is is supporting them um, as of now. And, you know, don't forget the Democratic Party is like cozying up to Uber. I mean, the, the, the lead counsel for Uber is Kamala Harris's brother-in-law. So what do you guys think this means for, you know, taxi workers, the fight against Uber? Schumer's relationship with Kamala? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, that I, I can't speak to New York specifically, but I can say that, you know, I represent a state um, that can where folks can write the largest checks they want to folks like me. And uh, there's a lot of money going around in Harrisburg. And that means that very wealthy corporations like Lyft and Uber give generously, not to me, but give generously to Republicans and Democrats alike. And you better believe that they're buying influence. And uh, any bill, and I'm working on a bill around uh, transit uh, network companies, TN, you know, TNCs, uh, uh, this is a really important issue on so, many, on so many levels. You talk about worker rights, you're talking about public health, um, I mean, taxi drivers, that's the, one of the deadliest jobs on the planet. Uh, most do not make a living wage. A lot of them are folks from marginalized communities. Um, and we need to think about the implications about the cars they drive and how it impacts people's health and environment, um, our infrastructure, all of these things. So it's a really important issue that a lot of people don't think about. Um, but it, it really, really matters. And it's actually related to a bill I, I, um, I'm about to introduce that is a one fair wage bill. Um, so increasing the minimum wage uh, to $15 and then um, um, uh, rising based on cost of living adjustments. But it also abolishes the tipped minimum wage, which is a vestige of slavery. And third, it includes vulnerable communities, uh, vulnerable uh, workers such as incarcerated workers, workers with disabilities who are not included in the original minimum wage bill in the 30s. And, and third, gig workers, most mm. notably folks who are at, who work for, who I believe are technically employees of Lyft and Uber and other, uh, other major corporations who are making uh, a ton of money in the pandemic. And those folks deserve a living wage too. And this is not going to cut along Democratic and Republican lines. Mm -hmm. This is talking about who are more invested in, in corporate interests versus the interests of, of average working people. And uh, it's going to be a very complex and um, meaningful set of conversations around it. I think what Red Rabbit said is so important, which is until we figure out a way for the interests of like medallion cab drivers and the Uber drivers at the same time, and like, you know, a platform that benefits both of them, there's not a solution to this. Otherwise there, you can always pit one person against another person, right. especially when people are looking to make some bucks in a pandemic. I mean, come right. on, you know, uh, and the unions uh, sort of, it is of course about protecting their flock, but I think there needs to be sort of more expansive vision about how to bring new people in. And, you know, there's just a lot of workers in this country yeah. and they don't know their workers. Exactly what Rob said. Yeah, they don't know. know. Yeah. It's and, delightful and it's, to see this Schumer primary, though. It just keeps going and keeps giving. <laughs> it just keeps giving gifts right and left. I mean, the man is running. Beautiful. The man is running. Yeah. 
He's definitely running. I mean, listen, people mock him. He's a very smart politician. I, a Republican uh, that I know from growing up called me up and, and like an operative. And he said, you know, I think Schumer is going to be beaten by uh, AOC. And I was like, I don't think she's going to do, I don't, I mean. She's getting more than she could ever get. Like, why would you stop doing what you're doing? Exactly. And with that being said, people dismiss how politically savvy Schumer and Pelosi are. They got to their positions because they're not, they, they weren't like a point. I mean, it was, she obviously raises a ton of money as does he, but he was, you know, he bucked the machine and that's how he got into power. If, if you have a chance, maybe we should do a special on this where we talk about uh, Chuck Schumer's rise to power, because just as Harry Reid's rise to power, these are professional politicians. They understand, they're like the Tammany Hall, the Plunkett of Tammany Hall <laughs> kind of guy. Alphonse D'Amato was no dummy, Alphonse. right? Yes, <laughs> Senator D'Amato, yep. All right, Chris Rabb, Representative Rabb from the 200th District of Pennsylvania and Arun Chowdhury live from Kosovo. What time is it there? You are falling. I bet you're falling asleep. It is 10.15. Okay, maybe it's not that late. It's like dinner time in Kosovo. What time do they eat dinner in Kosovo? You know, they do. It's not like Italians or they're having like dinner at like 11 o'clock. It's more of a sensible kind of, you know, six or seven kind of maneuver. Six to seven. What's wrong with that? (laughs) But they probably start drinking at like 11. I mean, so do. Well, also we have a curfew, you know. For, oh, uh, right. Of course. Of course. Also pushed up a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, be well. We will see you next week. Uh, everybody else, we'll, we'll close out with our shout outs here. Before you go, Rep Rab, Fadi Anton says, Rep Rab is a force of nature, a great man. <laughs> Agreed. No, that's Agreed. not my mother under a pseudonym. <laughs> no, no, Fadi. He gives shout outs all the time. So keep up the great work. Left his best, says Ravi S. Prairie Fire Kowalski sends me a cup of coffee. Thank you so much. And always, always, always thanks to Professor Harvey K in the live chat and YouTube and Twitch. Uh, oh, he switched to Twitch today. This is amazing. You guys don't have to stick around for this if you don't want to. Uh, and Mario Q, thank you for working the algorithms. As always, our moderators, Bob Choke in the Orb and Chuck Diesel on YouTube and Dorian Sapiens, A Difficult Truth, and Nug Wrangler on Twitch. Thank you for keeping those chat rooms troll free. To everybody else, be well. To our patrons, as always, thank you. Uh, And to those of you who are part of our book club, hope you're enjoying The Truth Has Changed. If you've gotten it, if you haven't gotten it already, let me know. Uh, But we will be posting that first conversation about The Truth Has Changed today, I believe. So go check it out. And we will see you tomorrow for Fem Friday right here at 3 p.m. Solidarity.